Now you can turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 is where I want to direct your attention. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. I'm going to read from Acts 14 verses 8 through 20 and uh, Paul's ministry in the city of Lystra. And uh, I would like you to turn there with me so you can follow along in your copy of the Bible. If you don't have one, take one in the pews ahead of you and turn to Acts chapter 14. Now follow along here as we read God's word. In Lystra, there was a man, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet! At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw, verse 11, what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form! Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles... Barnabas and Paul heard of this. They tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Several years ago, World Magazine had a little article about an effort that some Japanese uh, scientists were making in order to help a group of endangered albatrosses breed. Uh, they set up in this isolated island, uh, isolated island chain, they set up an, uh, 100 albatross decoys. And they were hoping that male and female albatrosses would, or albatry, <laughs> albatrosses would come and land and uh, the decoys would draw them in and then they would meet one another and mate. And it was a fine plan except uh, for the case of one albatross whose name was Deco who refused to cooperate. See, what Deco did when he saw those decoys there is he saw potential. And in fact, for two years, he tried to woo one of the albatrosses. Uh, he built her an elaborate nest. He did mating dances for her. He chased off rivals uh, from the, the, for her affection. Um, he stayed by her for two years with the hopes that sometime she would respond. Uh, one of the researchers, a man by the name of Fumio Sato, summarized the problem. He said this way, Deco seems to have no desire to date real birds. Uh, Deco, the albatross, provides what I think is a pretty good example of what Paul said in verse 15, which is, I think, the central verse in this whole passage. When, when Paul says, 
we're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Deco the albatross is an animal in need of conversion. For the survival of his species, he needed to turn from worthless things. But I, I need to tell you, though, that uh, this story, uh, it, this passage is not just about a bird. This passage, well, I'm the real target of this call in verse 15. And you're the real target of this call in verse 15. It's not just birds that can be enamored with decoys. It's not just birds that, that, that fall in love with worthless things. Uh, we have this story before us. The chief problem in this story is idolatry, and it has all of the trappings that we think of when we think of ancient idolatry. There's Zeus and Hermes, these Greek names that we know. There's a temple, there's priests, there's bulls, there's reeds, sacrifices. Those are all the ancient forms that we think of when we think of idolatry. We don't have those in our culture, but that does not mean that we're free from idolatry. Now, let's set the stage here a little bit for what's going on. Paul here is in a new city, the city of Lystra. And you know already from just a short examination of his ministry that Paul always started his work in a new city in a Jewish synagogue. That was where he went. He may have done that in Lystra. We don't know. The text doesn't say. But in this context, though, Paul is speaking to men and women who have very little familiarity, if any familiarity at all, with the God of the Bible. And, and I think that shapes what he says here in this context. If Paul was going to a synagogue, what would he say? He would walk into the synagogue and he would announce to the people that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God has made. He'd talk to them about their ancestors, Moses and David and Abraham, and he would say, Jesus, all the promises that they got find their fulfillment in Jesus, who is the Messiah, our Savior. We read a sermon like that, didn't we, a few weeks ago from Acts 13? Uh, I, I'm not a, a Jew by, by uh, nationality. Um, I don't share in that Jewish ancestry. Uh, most of us don't, but we read those and we celebrate. God keeps his promises. He's faithful to keep his promises. Now, when he visits this city, though, his target in this sermon, this, this little ministry vignette here, is not... God keeps his promises. He wants to talk to these people about idolatry. He does the same thing in Acts 17 when he gets to Athens. And the idolatry that the Bible addresses goes beyond uh, statues and priests and temples. See, the Bible in describing idols is not just concerned with your religious actions, but your religious affections. Here's how Augustine uh, defined idolatry. It's written down there for you. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything that ought to be worshipped. Or maybe you could describe it this way here. Idolatry is putting something or someone in the place in your life where God ought to be. Idolatry is putting something or someone in the place in your life where God ought to be. God made human beings to know him and to love him and to trust him and to, to depend on him, to be satisfied in him, to find meaning and purpose in him, to center our lives around him. And idolatry takes God out of that central position and puts something else in it. We swim and we live in idolatry. It's so endemic to us. It, 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 it's, it's like the air that we breathe. 
they're hard to identify because we're so used to living this way. The Bible says that idolatry is one of the most threatening of sins. In fact, if we understand what the Bible says about sin, it will change our understanding of, of idolatry. Uh, 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 if, cha- if we understand what the Bible says about idolatry, it will change our understanding of the nature of sin itself. Listen to what Tim Keller said. Sin isn't only doing bad things. That's a first grade definition of sin, right? Sin is doing bad things. But he says, sin isn't only doing bad things, it is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. In our culture, idolatries, uh, idols are not usually things. They're not usually statues. Uh, they can be, though. Idols could, an idol could be a thing. But in our culture, they are more often uh, positions, relationships, achievements, experiences. Let, let me give you three suggestions for uncovering idols in your life. Legan Duncan uh, said that one way to uncover your idols in your life is to look at your disappointments. Think about what disappoints you. Where are you most disappointed? What do you have the greatest feeling? Where do you have the greatest feeling that life has not worked out the way you want? Underneath that disappointment may be an idol. Uh, Tulian Chavidjian, in, in contrast to that, he doesn't want you to think necessarily about your disappointments. He wants you to think about what you do when you're stressed. That can be a pointer to an idol in your life. Um, if you, w- when you have a bad day, if you're stressed, if, if life is pressing down on you, and you eat a one-pound bag of peanut M&Ms to console yourself, you may have an idea about an idol in your life. Or um, if, if you need to watch porn every night before you can go to sleep because it's the only thing that relaxes you enough so that you can get rest, you may be dealing with a comfort idol in your life. Think about your disappointments. Think about your stresses. Justin Buzzard suggests that you think about what you fear. Think about what you fear. He identifies four prominent idols in our culture, and he shows how they're related to our fear. So listen, he says, the four idols are control, approval, comfort, and power. You know you have a control idol if your greatest fear is uncertainty. I've got to know what's going to happen to my life. You know you have an an approval idol if your greatest fear is rejection. Everybody has to like me, so I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that everybody likes me because I don't want to be rejected. You know you have a comfort idol if your greatest fear is stress or demands. Life is too hard. Bring on the peanut M&M's. Or finally here, you know you have a power idol if your greatest fear is humiliation or embarrassment. So Paul here is traveling to Lystra. He's coming in obedience to the Lord's command to take the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth. And he notes here, this is one way in which we enunciate the gospel. What does it mean to be a Christian? The call of the gospel is to turn from worthless things to the living God. And this passage that I read here makes a case 
for why you should do that, why you should turn from worthless things to the living God. And it makes that case in two different ways. First thing I want to show you is I want to show you this passage tells us what worthless things cost. What worthless things cost. Um, What do they demand of us? What do they bring? What are the consequences of living for worthless, worthless things? And second, this passage tells us about what the living God does. Who is he? And what has he done that makes turning to him such a wonderful invitation? I want to show you both of these elements in this text this morning. And uh, even, even if you're already a follower of Jesus, you know that this, this invitation is still part of your life, isn't it? Calvin says, your heart is an idol factory. There's decoys all around us. And we're constantly tempted to pick them up with joy and happiness or to demand that they satisfy us. This is the call. Turn from worthless things to the living God. Now, let's talk first of all here about what worthless things cost. Um, I want you to notice here, first of all, that this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of life and death. I don't want to be dramatic uh, this morning, but think with me about how this scene in Lystra begins and ends. Um, it begins with two people, one at the beginning, one at the end, getting up on their feet. The text uses two different forms of the same word, rise up. And these are the bookends at the beginning and end of this ministry in Lystra. And I think that Luke is trying to communicate this something to us. Narratives in the Bible use a lot more subtlety than Paul. Some of you love Paul's epistles. Because when Paul wants to make a point, he uses about seven words and he makes the point and he stabs you in the eye with it. Okay, we understand exactly what Paul is saying. Narratives are much more subtle. They call for reflection and observation and and thought. They're not as easy to read. But there's these bookends here of these getting up stories at the beginning and the end. I want to talk about the contrast between the two of them. Actually, first, I want to focus on the first story for just a minute, and I want to think about how it shows up in the whole book of Acts. Oh, it's another thing about narratives. Scenes do multi, multifunctional. They, they function a lot of different ways. Well, so here's a story that begins with a healing miracle. Paul uh, commands a man who has never walked in his whole life to stand up and walk. Uh, did that happen? Has that happened before in the book of Acts? <gasps> yes, it has. I'm glad you remembered. Acts chapter 3. Who are the apostles in Acts chapter 3? Peter and John. And there's similarities between what happens in Acts 3 and Acts here 14. Um, two apostles, there's Peter and John and, and Paul. That, that's the difference. But there's both passages mention an intense stare. Both passages mention the fact that the, the man was born lame and had never walked before. And both passages mention the fact that he jumps, he leaps to his feet. Uh, remember a few weeks ago I, I said that when we follow Paul throughout his ministry, we're going to find Paul redoing some of the things that Peter did in the beginning. This is an effort to show us that uh, uh, Paul is a legitimate apostle just like Peter. Paul is doing God's work, sanctioned by the Holy Spirit, commanded by Jesus, just like Peter was. So this, this story, in a sense, legitimizes Paul. The other thing, though, that it does for us is it tells us about God's consistent work. God works consistently. He has a plan. uh, Peter and John are in Jerusalem, a predominantly Jewish city. 
And Paul here in Acts 14 is in Lystra. Lystra is kind of a backwater town in Asia Minor, not a real impressive uh, town. Um, But consistently from place to place, um, region to region, meeting to meeting, city to city, nationality to nationality, God works through two consistent methods. What do both of these apostles or all these apostles do? Two things, gospel proclamation and church formation. Gospel proclamation, church formation, God's M.O. in the book of Acts. You should be familiar with the gospel proclamation. We've talked about that a lot. And in fact, next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about church formation again. Gospel proclamation, church formation. We send various people overseas to do ministries. There, some of them are skilled nurses. Some of them are mechanics. Some of them are teachers and musicians. The center of the work that they do, wherever we send them, should be around these two things. Because this is what God does. He consistently works this way. Gospel proclamation and church formation. Uh, Paul told the Ephesians that the church by its very existence is a testimony to the wisdom of God. John told the believers that one of the ways that we testify to the fact that God loves us is that we love one another. God's plan is to testify about himself through the church. His wisdom on display. His love on display. His authority on display in the church. I want to remind you of that because... Um, one of the things that we do when we care for one another and we function together, at, even at congregational meetings, right? This is God's plan for testifying about himself in the world. I want to invite you over and over and over again to invest yourself in a, this local congregation because God's plans are consistent. This is what he does. It's what he's always been doing, calling his people to proclaim the gospel and form congregations. Now, That's the first miracle. I want to think with you that these bookends, let's talk about them in bookends, Um, these two miracles. The first man who gets up has heard Paul preaching. He recognizes the, the God that Paul speaks about. He sees the connection between God, the God Paul is proclaiming, and his own physical condition. He's never walked, not one day in his life, but he believes on the basis of what Paul is saying, that this God can restore his his feeble legs, and, and, and he believes that. And Paul, with prophetic insight, sees that he has the faith to do this, and he commands him to rise and walk. Now, the second man to get up in the second story is the Apostle Paul himself. Why is he on the ground? <laughs> well, he's on the ground because he has been stoned and left for dead by a mob. Note, here's the contrast. Note the contrast between the two. The message about the living God proclaimed by Paul leads to health and wholeness in a lame man. And the message, though, in contrast to that, those who believe in worship, worshiping worthless things, what do they do? They are violent and angry and jealous, and it leads to death. They're fickle and they're unstable. This is what worshiping worthless things leads to. You see here? Paul wants you to know that this is a matter of life and death. Now, uh, I should say something here about this word worthless before we move on. Worthless things. Why does Paul talk about idols as if they're worthless things? Because they're, they're worthless in the sense that they can't be trusted. 
that they are unable to save you, to rescue you, to provide for you in a time of danger. The Associated Press a number of years ago had a story about a New Zealander. His name was Ivan Segedin. And over the course of five years, Ivan Segedin was uh, ticketed 32 times by the police in his town for not wearing his seatbelt. He didn't like to wear his seatbelt. Um, so, because he was tired of, of, of paying the fees, he took an old seatbelt that he had and he tied it to his seatbelt and would drape it over his shoulder whenever he would drive around so he didn't have to wear his seatbelt. Um, I know one New Zealander. She's a lot smarter than that. Um, you know uh, exactly here what happened to Ivan Segedin, right? You drive around long enough with a fake seatbelt. What's going to happen? Well, he, he was in a uh, head-on collision. He slammed in the steering wheel and died from the accident. A fake seatbelt is like a worthless god. It cannot and it will not protect you in a day of calamity. Will your worthless things save you? The things that you're trusting in, are they going to deliver you? Or will they provide a real hope for you? Now, when we talk about worthless things, a matter of life and death, second here, notice what they produce. They produce confusion. They produce confusion. Confusion about what is really important and who really matters. What's really important and who really matters. There's a story behind what happens in verses 11 through 13, this worship. They want to worship God. Uh, They want to worship, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes. Here's the story. Every commentator talks about this in Acts 14. There was a a poet, an ancient poet. His name was Ovid. And Ovid wrote a, a story about something that happened in these same mountains where Lystra is located. Here's how the story went. One day, the gods Hermes and Zeus showed up as human beings walking on the roads of this region. They knocked on 1,000 doors trying to find a place where someone would feed them or uh, give them some food or maybe provide some lodging for them. 1,000 houses they went to and no one answered until they came to a house, a very small house of a very poor old man and old woman who invited them in and fed them food and provided them with lodging. And, And after their kindness... The gods unveiled themselves in all their divine glory. They turned that small shack into a huge and beautiful temple. They made the old man and the old woman a priest and priestess in this temple. And then they went to every single one of those 1,000 homes where they killed all the residents and flattened all those houses. That was an ancient story. This is an ancient Lystran bedtime story. All right? So with that ringing in their ears, you can understand what's going on here. They see somebody who looks like they could be Zeus and Hermes, and they're not going to miss the opportunity. Not going to miss out on the chance to to worship them. But Paul and and Barnabas, so eventually here, they see through their confusion. And verse verse, uh, 15, why are you doing this? We too are only human beings like you. You, Lystrans, are confused about what really matters who really is important. It does not matter who or what you worship. If it is not the God of the Bible, it will disappoint you. In fact, it will go beyond that. It will use you. It will hurt you. David Foster Wallace was an award-winning and best-selling journalist and novelist. He, uh, He committed suicide in 2008. 
Before he did that, though, he spoke at a graduation speech. And listen to what he said. Um, This is not, by any stretch, David Foster Wallace was not a follower of Jesus. This was not a Christian college graduation. In the day-to-day, he said, trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over things to keep the the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. doesn't matter what you worship. If it's not God, it will use you. It will disappoint you. It will use you. It will abuse you. Worship uh, idols are worthless things. They are abusive things. If you're a single person and you're convinced that you would be happy if you could only have a a spouse, your life would have meaning and fulfillment if you could just get married, you're worshiping at the altar of relationships, and whenever anyone gets close to you, you will crush them because no human being can bear the weight of all of your expectations and hope. If you're a parent and your happiness in life is wrapped up in what your children do and how they perform and how they reflect on your good parenting and what sort of holy people they are, what happens if they're more prodigal than pious? Do you have anything else to live for? Is there anything else you're relying on that's going to sustain you and uphold you? You can see in this passage how this confusion that they have produces instability. Um, They go from wanting to worship Paul and Barnabas to stoning Paul in a matter of, of what must be a few minutes here, maybe a couple of hours at best. This reminds me of of the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem, isn't it? We're about to celebrate next week Palm Sunday. and uh, On Sunday they acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! And five days later they yell, Crucify him! Idolatry is is so unstable. Can you see why it's worth examining your life for idols? Why it's worth looking for them and rooting them out? Why you should turn from whatever else has your trust and your allegiance and your confidence? Whatever else gives your life meaning and purpose? The price to be paid, brothers and sisters, the price to be paid at the altar of idols, of worthless things, is too high now in verses 15 through 17 here there's this second part of this case for why you should turn from worthless things to the living god and here the focus is on god himself and paul is going to announce i'm going to tell you about the living god so that you will turn to him and in contrast to the worthless things that you're trusting in and he tells us three things here about about what god has done first god has created all things he created all things The living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You think, Paul says, you think your God Zeus is worthy of worship? Zeus lives in heaven, you think. I'll tell you who made the heavens where Zeus, the God you think is all that, lives. The 
The God of the Bible, the God I'm proclaiming to you. As God, as creator, God is the master of all. The world is his design. He has the right to tell you how to live. The Bible drops a nuclear bomb into your mind and heart with its first ten words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Your life, in many ways, is an unpacking of the significance of that verse. He's the creator. Second, this God has initiated a new day. He's initiated a new day. Now, verse 16 could be a little tricky here. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Now, what we might think first is that God just let them do what they want and it was okay. So, um, you know, you're, 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 you're trying to read a book and, and your children... Uh, ask a question, can I go outside and play? Yeah, go ahead. Just you, Go ahead, just go do something else. Or you're, um, you let them go their own way. That's, that's not the point of this passage. The point of the passage, though, is um, rather that God of all the nations picked Israel its own, his, as his chosen people, and he gave them his promises and his word, and he didn't do anything directly with the other Gentile nations. Um, they were left on their own, kind of. That, that's a bit of an overstatement, but, but Paul's moving in that direction. But, he says, now, now, Paul is here to announce that those days are over because he's come with a message uh, about Jesus Christ for everyone. This is a new message for all about Jesus. It's a new day. The past is over. This is a new day of good news through Jesus. Now, third, God has testified about himself. He's testified about himself. Um, verse 17, he's spoken. What did he do? He, he showed kindness. And verse 17 actually touches on, on two important concepts in systematic theology. Let's pretend we're in a doctrine class for just a moment. We're going to talk about two things. One, natural revelation. God reveals himself in nature. God, God's kindness is evident in nature. How? Because he gives rain and crops. He gives us food. This is... God's kindness revealed in nature. So in the, next, in the coming months when you drive around Lancaster County and you see cornfields and soybean fields, um, you look at them and you say, look, God is so kind. Why would we have any expectation that the corn would grow this year other than God's testifying about himself and his kindness? Isn't he kind? So natural revelation, God reveals himself in nature. Now the second thing to, that this passage reminds us of is a concept called common grace. Common grace. That is, God is gracious universally to everyone on the planet. God is commonly gracious. He's universally gracious to everyone. He sends rain and food and joy and he gives it to us all. I'm thankful, I'm very grateful for God's common grace to to all of us. I'm, I'm grateful that God gives scientific wisdom to um, researchers and doctors so that they can invent medical tools and prescription drugs that help us. I'm, I'm glad that God has given to people, whether they know him or not, gifts of teaching 
to fill our schools. I'm glad that God has given grace to writers and poets and legislatures and engineers. And I'm grateful for God's common grace in car assembly line workers so that I, I can have a vehicle to drive around. Whether those people know him or not, or care about him or not, God gives them ingenuity and strength to work and build and create our, your life. How would you survive if it weren't for God's common grace to everyone? Uh, now, listen to what Stephen King said. Stephen King, the author, was Ill, uh, interviewed by Terry Gross on NPR a few years ago, and she asked him about his faith, and listen to what he said. It's certainly a subject that's interested me, and I think it interests me more the older that I get. And I think we'd all like to believe that after we shuffle off this mortal coil, that there's going to be something on the other side. Because for most of us, I know for me, life is so rich, it's so colorful and sensual and full of good things. Things to read, things to eat, things to watch, places to go, new experiences, that I don't want to think that you just go to darkness. I choose to believe in God. There's no downside to that. If you say, well, okay, I don't believe in God, there's no evidence of God, then you're missing the stars in the sky, and you're missing the sunrises and the sunsets, and you're missing the fact that bees pollinate all those crops and keep us alive, and the way that everything seems to work together. Everything is sort of built in a way that to me suggests intelligent design. God testifies through creation. Now, Luke summarizes here. I'm sure Paul's speech to them was longer than this. Um, I'm sure there were more words than this. But uh, uh, in Romans chapter 1 here, uh, I think Paul elaborates on what he would have said. And he talks about what happens. There was this natural revelation. If there's natural revelation, why then is there so much worship of worthless things? I'd like you to flip over with me, if you would, in your Bibles for just a minute to the next book, the next book to the right from Acts. We're going to go to Romans 1 and talk about worthless things in Romans 1, verse 18. Uh, and I just want to read this, and we'll see here uh, the opposite, the ungospel nature in Romans chapter 1. So Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, verse 20, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, we can add from Acts 14, his kindness, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks, thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human beings, a human being and birds and animals and reptiles. You see how ungospel this is? Paul's call in Acts 14, turn from worthless things to the living God. Why is that call issued? Because Romans 1 tells us that human beings have a history of turning from the living God to worthless things. The message of the gospel is a reversal of the choice that we have made. It's, it's cute. It's cute sometimes it happens. I, I hear parents complain about this. This never happened at my house. 
But you, have you ever heard parents complain about this? You, you go and buy a wonderful present for your child or for your grandchild and you put it in a box and you wrap it up and you give it to them and they tear it open and they open it and they pull the toy out and it's great. And what do they do? They play with the box and not the toy. I didn't see that happen, but I've heard it so many times. You're familiar with that, that trope, right? It's cute when it's little kids. Oh, look, he likes cardboard. Isn't that great? It's kind of cute, right? It's not cute if what you take out of the box is the living God and you play with the box of the world that he made to reveal himself. It's not cute. In fact, it's, it's disastrous. It's grotesque. It's twisted and broken. It's worthy of wrath. Paul says in Romans 1. Luke's summary ends with this recording about God providing us with joy. I, I wonder if Paul really stopped there. I don't think he did. Actually, um, if you've been paying attention to the rest of the book of Acts, you probably know what Paul says at this point in time. He, God has testified by his kindness. He's given us rain. He's given us food. He's given us joy. And what would Paul say next? But most of all, most of all, He has given us His Son. Oh, it's the new day. The new day when we can talk about the Lord Jesus. He's the one who came to rescue us from worshiping worthless things. And He rescues us by saving us from His Father's wrath. The wrath that we deserve for turning from Him. He saves us from wrath by bearing it Himself on the cross for us. He died and He rose again and He lives and He reorders and He realigns the hearts and minds of those who turn to Him. Those confused people. People who come to Him in dependent faith and ask for forgiveness and life. This call to turn from worthless things to the living God, it reminds me of a song that we sing sometimes. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me, find in me, thine all in all. Nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Lord, indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leopard spots and melt the heart of stone. When before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus, he paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Think about that line, though, from the beginning. Find in me thine all in all. You see, when Paul came to Lystra, he did not just say to the people, you're worthless things, you need to knock it off. Just stop it. Just stop it with the worthless things. They're hurting you. They're dangerous. Just knock it off. That's not what he said. He came in and he said, you love worthless things. I have something that is so much better. Someone who is so much better. In fact, he is sufficient to be your all in all. He is sufficient to swallow up your disappointments. He's sufficient to bear the weight of your stresses. He is sufficient to turn to in your moments of fear. He is able to be are all in all. Let's pray, shall we?
Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for this work that the book of Acts repeatedly reminds us of, that you are our great Savior and you are sufficient. You're sufficient for um, religious people whose identity is wrapped up in their spiritual heritage. You're sufficient for those who are wandered far from the way and revel in worthless things. Lord, we confess to you the truth that our hearts, they are indeed idle factories. Um, We are surrounded by decoys and some of the decoys that surround us we love dearly. It is easy for us, Father, to come and sing of your greatness and your goodness and your kindness and then when we leave to turn to what we're really trusting in to help us. Lord, I pray that there would be a conversion of idolatry in our congregation from worthless things to you again because your Son, our Savior, is weighty enough, glorious enough to be our all in all. Change us. Make that true in us. We pray according to your kindness in Jesus' name.